welcome back to the Ephesians podcast. We are on week four, where we're going to talk about Ephesians 2. So last week, we finally wrapped up Ephesians 1 with Landon and Mike, where we talked about Paul's prayer for us, which had three components. The first of which was that Paul's prayer was that we would know the hope to which we are called. Then he prayed for that we would understand the riches of our glorious inheritance. And thirdly, that we walk around with the resurrection power just by carrying the Holy Spirit. And so we are here with CJ. Hello. And CJ, where are we going this week? What is next in Ephesians? Uh, This week we're reading uh, Ephesians 2, the whole chapter. Uh, And at this point, it's still kind of the early part of Ephesians. One of the major themes of Ephesians is unity. Um, And from the very first pages of the the letter, he's uh, giving kind of a groundwork for asserting that unity. First, by saying that what actually matters is whether you're in Christ or not, that there's not some other marker but then also he's going to um, ground his call for unity, which he begins to make explicitly in, in the back half of chapter two. He begins to ground that um, by talking about um, who we are and how we got to where we're going to be, that the things that um, matter in terms of um, uh, our differences uh, are not like ethnic markers or anything like that, but rather uh, we're all kind of fundamentally the same in our condition. And so uh, that that shouldn't let any of us think that we're better than the others. And then he also kind of in this section is beginning to lay the groundwork for something he'll bring back up in uh, the the last chapter of Ephesians that uh, it's kind of dumb to be fighting against each other when we have, um, uh, you know, a bigger, a bigger fish to be frying, a bigger enemy to be fighting. So he'll, he'll also kind of lay the groundwork a little bit for that conversation here. Um, but it's a pretty theological chapter. He's trying to ground unity by telling us this is what our faith really teaches. And if you want to understand how we can get along and live together, then you have to understand what the the content of our faith is. Yeah, so this is um, a really great chapter, um, but there's a lot of language throughout it that we might get tripped up on, or if we misinterpret the language, we would not get a full understanding of the text. And so maybe we can start there. Like for instance, in verse two, um, it says, in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Like, who's the ruler of the kingdom of the air? Yeah, very cryptic, uh, a very cryptic phrase. So this is what I meant a second ago when this is kind of our homage or our, our nod toward, uh, again, the bigger fish to fry. So in, in Ephesians 6 especially, it's a, a thought about as being a, a chapter largely on spiritual warfare. So kind of after Paul's great call to unity in the kind of middle and back portion of Ephesians, um, he tells us, hey, here's really what you need to be worrying about. Um, you have, you know, these powers, principalities. He's talking about um, the demons here and the, and the forces of darkness that really do operate in the world. Um, these are what are at work and need to be combated. And he's meaning those here as well. Traditionally, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, it's a very kind of cryptic phrase, but it, it's traditionally thought to have meant Satan. Um, and Satan is described in a lot of interesting ways in the new Testament in second Corinthians, Paul describes him as the God of this world. Um, now we all know that he doesn't like Satan is not a God in the same way that God is God. And so our translators usually kind of use a, a lowercase G to, to distinguish that. But there is a sense in which, um, Satan really does rule the world. Um, he doesn't ultimately rule it. Um, and the way that he rules it is not because he has some kind of, uh, essential authority over the world, but rather because humanity um, and and the world gave ourselves over to him as our master. But um, for the earliest Christians, they took this language of um, um, demons, angels, the spiritual realm, very literally. 
Um, and they really did think Satan was at work in the world and in some sense ruled over and exerted authority over the world. And I think that begins to actually help us make sense of some of the other passages in Scripture that are a little bit odd. So how is it that Satan can offer Christ the world when he, Christ is um, being tempted, his third temptation? Uh, Satan said, hey, I'll give all of this to you. And you might be asking when you read that in the, in the Gospels, like, is that really Satan's to give, right? Isn't it, doesn't it already belong to Christ? Well, yes, but also in another sense, um, no, uh, that the world really has sold itself into slavery to Satan. We really are kind of um, under him in some meaningful sense. Uh, and so I think Paul's using that language here, that there really is um, a being, um, Satan, who is kind of the figurehead of darkness, though he's also a real um, creature. He, he really is out there. Um, and he rules over this world. And uh, the the things that he rules are other demons, but uh, powers and principalities is talked about a lot. Um, and the idea here is that demons don't only influence um, individuals and, and people, but also that there's a sense in which the world is being moved kind of corporately. So these powers and principalities, for example, are, are thought to have been, um, you know, fallen angels that... Um, that somehow exert force over nations and rulers and cultures. Uh, so for Paul and kind of the, the early church imagination, there really were forces out there that were working themselves out in individuals and in groups in nations and in cultures, exerting a kind of dark and demonic influence, which the people through their actions, through their laws, through their corporate action, um, they were actually carrying out the will of these demonic forces. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is a, this is a nod to um, that early church belief that there really is um, demonic control over the world. This isn't just like metaphorical fluffy language. I think, I think this is um, real, literal, and, and serious. Okay, so what does this mean then? Like, is it saying that the ruler of the kingdom of the air is like possessing us or... Is he like at work in us? Like, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. So right after it calls the kingdom of the air, it says the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And you might come away from that. You know, if you're going to take the the reference to the ruler of the kingdom of the air as this like literal being Satan, which I think it is. I think it really is saying there are real things out there that are influencing people. Well, does that mean like, what does it mean he's at work in us? Are are, are we, or, or especially non-Christians, are we committing ourselves to saying that like every, every non-Christian is possessed by a demon or like doing the bidding of Satan? Um, cause that seems like a kind of ridiculous assertion. Um, and I don't think that's exactly what he's going with here. Uh, I don't think that it's, uh, talking that like, you know, we were all possessed by demons before we became, became Christians. That would be a kind of extreme reading of that. But I do think there is a sense in which he does think, um, or at least suggests that there is a sense in which, um, we are influenced um, by something, and that there is something that fundamentally motivates human action, all human action. And this isn't only the case with um, those who are disobedient, but also presumably those are, who are obedient. So this language of like being worked in is also a theme that we'll see come up more and more and more in Paul when you get into other places and other letters. Uh, and the way he talks about here, the, the, the demons or the ruler of the kingdom of the air, um, these dark forces that are kind of exerting influence on us, and are working through us, through our own evil acts, to carry out their own will in some sense. The, the way that that kind of idea is structured is also very similar to how he talks about um, Christians also being um, kind of, in some sense, the conduit of God's work in the world. So you'll hear him talk about in other places that um, that that God is actually at work in us. So First Corinth, or I'm sorry, for Colossians one, 
He says something like, to, the, to this end, I labor struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. In Philippians 12, or 2, 12 and 13, he says, uh, and this is like a famously confusing thing. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you to will and act in order to perform, uh, fulfill his good pleasure. There's this sense that um, all human beings, kind of regardless of whether you're you know, um, a Christian or a non-Christian, we're, all of us are somehow, um, something is working in us. And then as we cooperate with it is working through us. And Paul uses the language either of um, kind of demonic forces, like the ruler of the kingdom of the air, or in other places, he'll use a, a different word like the flesh, sarks, um, which doesn't mean your physical body, uh, but means something like a kind of nature within you that is moving you to act, think, be, uh, and live certain ways. And what God actually does is he comes, and um, when he rescues us, he then he, he works within us and works through us so that the kind of energizing force um, of our life changes from we are now being energized by these impulses, um, either of our own kind of sinful nature or even external impulses, the, the real influence of demonic activity. Um, um, we're, we change from being moved by those things to being kind of energized and moved by God so that um, when we cooperate with him, when we become what Paul calls, uh, talks about in other places, being co-workers with God. So God is working in us. And as we are co-workers with him, his working, then somehow we become the kind of hands and feet of God uh, and that he works in us and through us in a way that's similar to how before we're redeemed, um, we are also being worked in and worked through, um, but it's not it's not by God. It's either by what he calls kind of the sinful nature or um, the, you know, the spirits now at work in the world. And again, I don't think this means um, possession. I don't think it means that you like you're, you're you don't have choices. You don't have kind of control over what you do or you think. I rather think that it's you do have a kind of control over what you do and what you think. But the things which you're directing your will, your mind, and your efforts toward are not the same. We could say like direction as what um, what God would have us kind of thinking, doing, and, and being. Um, so I think the idea here is not possession, but it's influence. Um, and that all of our acts are in fact influenced. It's just a question of what are we influenced by? What is at work within us? Is it our flesh? Is it the, the spirits who are now at work in the world? Um, or is it God and his energy, his light and his life is activating us and working through us as we cooperate, um, so that we can, uh, actually be his kind of hands and feet. Um, so yeah, I think not possession influence and our cooperation with that influence. Perfect. Um, so then there's also this word or grouping of words of good works that comes up in scripture a lot, especially Pauline literature. So whenever Paul uses these words, what does he mean? Yeah, it's a really confusing section. And this has become, these particular verses are like a massive flashpoint with some major disagreements within especially Protestant Christianity. Um, so there's probably something to talk about a little bit here. Um, Paul is asserting on, on some fundamental level that nobody earns their salvation. I mean, this is part of how he levels the playing field so that he can make this call to unity. Um, if no one merits being treated better by God than another person, then we can't say that he favors one person or another. It's not as if like, I'm better than you, Rachel. And so then God loves me more and I have some reason to boast over you. Um, and now, uh, there's a kind of favoritism that I can kind of claim. Um, but rather both of us are in a kind of equal condition 
of being totally broken. Neither of us can merit through any sort of act or what we perceive to be a good act. The, the, um, I don't know, the, the positive disposition of God in that he, he thinks one of us is better than the other. Um, and so he's trying to assert this kind of level playing field. Your works do not merit you anything. Rather, your faith, your grace, your justification, all of this is a gift of God. You know, that's the language kind of there in, in 2.8. Um, unfortunately, what happens a lot of times is that impulse to um, renounce the idea that we merit God's favor, which would lead to a kind of uh, favoritism situation. It would actually undercut the ability for us to be unified. Um, in trying to emphasize that, we kind of ignore the things that come after it. So we're like, okay, you can't merit God's favor. And so how you live or like the things you do, your works don't matter, right? Uh, so you'll hear the kind of specter of works-based righteousness thrown around a lot, which is a fancy phrase to just mean you can't earn your salvation. And you can't, obviously. Um, you cannot earn it. But there is a sense in which your works matter because you are meant to be working out as God works in you to do the good things God's prepared for you to do. So there's this really interesting kind of tension there in verses eight and nine. You are actually meant to do good works. Yes. And this is why he calls them good works. The idea here, um, and especially when, when they're talking about the works not saving you, he, Paul's a lot of times talking to, to Jews, especially, and talking about the role of the law in the life of the Christian. And that um, unlike maybe what many of the Old Testament Jews thought, if you were just righteous and you obeyed the Mosaic law, then you would be considered in fact, righteous. And Paul's like, no, that's, that's not the case. The Mosaic law is not the thing that saves you. Um, but that doesn't and shouldn't lead you to think that, okay, well then how I live has no bearing, no impact whatsoever on um, my status or what kind of person that I am or, you know. Um, and there's a, there's a word for this. It's called antinomianism, which is like a $5 word that hopefully now you know. Um, and it means no law. Uh, and this is actually a problem. This is not a, a thing that the church has ever taught. The idea of in the antinomians were that, um, you know, you're saved by grace. Uh, it's not based on anything you do. And so you basically can just live however you want, right? It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you, you know, if you do something bad, if you do something good, none of that matters because it's grace all the way down. Um, and the idea that it's grace all the way down is true. But the idea that Therefore, because it's grace all the way down, you can just do whatever you want, including sin, no matter what you sin at all, it's all going to be fine. Um, that idea is a wrong idea. It's just in uh, a way of ignoring what Paul tells us explicitly here, which is that your salvation has a point. Your point is to look more like Christ and be the hands and feet of Christ. And so if you're not doing these good works, then you're going to fall under, I think, the, the, the condemnation of, of James just a couple of books later in the New Testament. So when he says something like faith, faith without works is dead, I think this is what he's saying. If you just think that it's grace all the way down and that somehow is a justification for you living however you want, and not trying to have and cooperate with the work of God in you so that you can have God work through you, uh, then you're in real trouble and you've really misunderstood what's happening here. Um, so for me, that's what's going on. The good works are something we're expected to do that in some sense we must do. It's not those good works that save us, but it's also not that we can just ignore those good works as if they have nothing to do with um, the gift that God did give us um, by grace. So maybe are they more of the proof of our saving than the means by which we are saved? Um, yeah, it's not, I don't, I wouldn't say it's the means by which we're saved, but I do think that there is some significant sense in which, uh, we, we really must grow more like Christ. Um, and we do that by letting and cooperating with God working in us. And to fail to do that is to resist 
the work of God in you. And I think that is a, that is a serious problem. So I don't know if I'd say it's merely the proof that you already are saved, nor would I say that these contribute in some meaningful sense to your salvation. I think both of those kind of pit themselves uh, or lend themselves to uh, opposing errors. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, it lends itself to the error that your works do save you merit toward your salvation. Uh, And I don't think that's exactly what he's saying here. Um, But then the other error being it lend itself toward um, the the antinomian error that you you don't have to do anything and that your your acts don't matter at all. Um, So I don't think I'd phrase it either of those two ways um, because I think both of those are errors. I think rather, I don't know how I'd phrase it exactly. I think I'd just say what Paul says here. You're saved by grace so that you can do good works. And so to deny the latter by claiming the former is just to break the total logic of salvation. And to think that you can get away with that, Paul just says you can't, right? And so does St. James. Yeah, so you're talking about these errors, and you've explained a couple of them, but maybe we can talk about all four of them. Yeah, yeah. So I said there's yeah, there's kind of twin um, twin errors in two different conversations. One of the conversations we didn't talk about here in the podcast quite as much, um, and it especially comes from the the first couple of verses in chapter two. That phrase, you know, dead dead in your transgressions, and what does that really mean? Um, does that mean they're in in some sense we're like literally dead, that we're missing some essential human capacity or that we are utterly evil and that we can never think or do or uh, act in any way that's good ever? Um, yeah, I think that phrase also lends itself to an error. So the twin errors, we'll go over kind of four errors. I just went over two of them, right? We have the antinomian error. What you do doesn't matter at all. Um, that's a problem. And then the other half of that error, the opposite error on the same spectrum there, is a works-based righteousness error, the idea that your acts do, in fact, merit salvation. Neither of those is the truth of the Christian faith. The other spectrum of errors has to do with um, good works a little bit as well. The first error, I've called it Pelagianism. Um, And this was named after a guy in the early church who thought and taught that basically human beings were not really corrupt and that uh, we, we kind of can um, choose God without him, you know, doing anything. We can just kind of know what God says and do it. And we don't really need God working in us in order for us to do, to do good and to be pleasing. So it's the idea that you don't really need grace. Uh, that's an, and that was an error that was condemned by the early church as being that is not what we've ever taught. So that's called Pelagianism, another $5 word. You don't need to remember the word, just the concept. You do need grace, right? Um, and then there's another, um, there's another, uh, the, the opposite end of that spectrum is if on the first hand, you need no divine aid whatsoever. The other end of that spectrum is that we do absolutely nothing when it comes to being saved or not saved, uh, that we do nothing at all. We are dead things. And so we have dead wills. And so God has to save us or God has to not save us. So those who are saved is because God chose to save them. Those who are not saved, it's because God chose not to save them. So on the one hand, Pelagianism, no grace, on the opposite air, it's like they're emphasizing grace so much that they kind of deny that humans have anything to do whatsoever with cooperating with God. Um, this is Calvinism. It's also called Jansenism and other, other traditions. But just the idea that um, because salvation deals with grace, then it's only God's doing. We have no ability to cooperate or resist. It has nothing to do with us. Um, and I think both of these have been um, wrongly derived from Ephesians 2, but both of them are errors. These distinctions can be pretty important, and it's important to notice that both of the, the errors, they come uh, on a spectrum with one error at one end and one error on the other for kind of both of these questions. And that's important, especially as a, a group leader. So if you're leading a group over Ephesians 2, you have to um, 
exercise care when you're addressing these errors because if if you're trying to combat one error, there's always the danger of pushing them into the other error to kind of overcompensate. And so I think it's worth knowing why both ends of these uh, spectrums are wrong and then ex- exercising again extreme care trying to figure out what you know what what might be a misconception that's coming out of this reading in this particular group or with this particular person and just being very careful that you're not accidentally either pushing them further toward the other error or pushing them further into their own error so for example if they're um if, if you have a group that's reading and you think based on your reading of Ephesians 2, that the thing that you really need to harp on is like works-based righteousness. You really need to harp on the idea that, that our works do not save us, and so this is not about works. And so you kind of ignore the good works part of, of Ephesians in, in, chapter, in 2, verse 9. But let's say while you're doing this, what's actually happening is you have a group of people that you're leading or having a conversation with, and um, they actually have a problem with uh, living righteously altogether. They already think that you can just kind of do whatever you want. And so you're harping on legalism or what you think to be legalism, um, how that's an error. And what you actually might functionally be doing is pushing them further into their own antinomian tendencies, the idea that, well, God's going to forgive me so I can just kind of live however I want. And so this, uh, this chapter, I think, especially takes some extra discernment as someone who's leading a group about where the people that you're leading a group uh, where they are in relation to some of these errors, if they're in falling into these errors, and being very careful to try and draw them back toward uh, the center rather than focusing on what you think might be important, which might end up inadvertently pushing them further into their own extreme, further into to, uh, their own error. Thanks, CJ. I think that wraps it up. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So thank you all for listening, and we'll be back next week for week five. Bye.